If you walk down Britannia Street near Crepe Manu in Creole Creamery, you'll find a somewhat hidden, lovely bakery and coffee shop named Manhattan Jack. Manhattan Jack is a creation of Jack Petronella, a master chef, and Coleman Jernigan, a musician and former Starbucks barista. Manhattan Jack has been wildly successful, and today I sit down with the jolly Jack Petronella to discuss what it takes to be successful and the losses he endured along the way. Well, I think I knew that it was a passion, and I also was told that you follow your passions. So the direction was given to me. Then I realized that for every time I experienced new food, I remembered everything about it. Mm -hmm. I questioned a lot about how it got to my table and was presented to me. Mm -hmm. And then I would go and try to duplicate it. And so I realized that in three dimensions, I was trying to learn things about cooking food. So you would actually go and, and make the dishes that you, would, that you had been eating? Yeah, quite often. Quite often. Um, I always had a really good memory. So then I started to have a lot of family relatives were very close at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say at the time because that's something that we will go full circle with in the conversation. But I was the baby of the whole family of my Irish side, which was my mother's, and my father's side. And apparently something that I didn't know for quite some time and then learned even more about when I was an adult Mm -hmm. was that between my sister and I, my mother had twin girls. Hmm. And they were named Janet and Jane, and they lived in separate cribs in their bedroom for seven months. And then my parents woke up one day, and they were both passed. And in 1958, they wrote it off as crib death. And it was extremely destructive to my mom. And apparently my father had to bury them while my mother was put in the hospital to recover from the anxiety of it happening. Years... Apparently, two and a half to three years went by, because that's when I came along. Uh, Their marriage was on the rocks, and they weren't sleeping together. And his doctors, who were best friends of his, said, you need to get your wife pregnant again, and this will be absolutely the savior, because we know you love each other. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to be a problem. But what I found out as an adult was that they got stranded in Las Vegas... Uh, because of a snowstorm in New York in February of one year, and I came along. So as crazy as my personality is, I'm very proud to know that I I was conceived in Vegas, because that just fits 100%. And that was why I say... I didn't know that till I was an adult, but I, I, you know, I laughed and said, why would you hold that back from me? That's probably the best part of the story. Well, so uh, did it save the marriage? Oh, it saved the marriage very much. And it also apparently made me a star. And I didn't know that as a little child. So I was doted on by everyone. And all those aunts and uncles who never showed up without a cherry pie, if they were a baker or a bag of candy, if they just had nothing else to give me quickly on a visit, I always had a gift given to me. I was always bounced on a knee. I was always doted on. And these people, as I started to think that I loved and had a passion for one type of um, 
business mm-hmm. career, they all encouraged it. You know, my like, aunt who cooked, mm-hmm. who was the major uh, Italian chef of the whole family, would say to my parents, let him come over. You're all coming over for dinner tonight. Let him come over early in the day and I'll cook with him. So I was getting it from all directions. One, I looked at that as an opportunity to learn more. And the passion grew. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it, it sort of guided me that maybe what I'm feeling is what could be a career someday mm-hmm. because of how serious everyone around me took it. Did you think that you would own your own restaurant one day type of thing or that you would just pursue it and see what happened? Did you have a vision about what it would be? I had a vision, and it's amazing that it's coming true, but it has changed so often, which I think they always do as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everyone visions when they go into this business that they will have a restaurant one day. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, when I graduated college, I said to my dad, I, w- I would like to go to the Culinary Institute of America, and I'm working at a restaurant now, which will help boost my requirements to get me in. Mm-hmm. Because you could want to go to that school, but it doesn't necessarily that you'll be accepted to the school. So I had set it all up so that before I asked him, I would know if it was a possibility or not. And he was ecstatic. And for all everyone accomplished in my family, being Italian, he just loved the idea that I was going to go to the Culinary Institute. And he was building a massive apartment complex in Poughkeepsie only a mile away from where the Culinary Institute of America was in Hyde Park, Hmm. and said to me, you get into this school, pick an apartment, you can live there for free. Sort of incentive and sort of just the generosity my father always had in him. When I was halfway through the school, his business partner and best friend was the um, general contractor on the property. He gave me an allowance every week. He looked after me. He watched after me. He took me out to dinner whenever I had free time. And he came to my door to tell me that they had found out uh, that my father was sick. Hmm. And he wanted me to... My parents wanted somebody with me when they told me. They had been on a very long European tour. And so he contracted cancer while he was away. And there was no one there to see it in an early stage. Hmm. And as he lost weight and got tired, they thought it was because they were on such a long tour and they were eating their way through Europe and doing a lot of walking. So it wound up he was given six months to live. He had lung cancer, and he died six months to the day. I was in school. I wanted to get out immediately. I wanted nothing to do with it anymore. I wanted to spend every waking moment with him. He was generous. He was loving. He was exactly the father that you wind up losing at a young age. I always look back on life and felt like the best ones really were taken early. Um, I had a neighbor next door whose father was an alcoholic. He was god-awful, and I resented that he was still alive for decades after my father was gone. Mm -hmm. But that's when I woke up. That was absolutely the moment where I realized that everything was on my shoulders and life wasn't being handed to me anymore. Mm -hmm. Thank God I was in the middle of creating a stable career. And if you're in food and beverage, at least like your father says, you'll never go hungry Mm -hmm. at the very least. Um, I think he looked at it sort of like a trade career 
because there was no TV Food Network yet. There were no chefs as stars by any means. Mm-hmm. It was Julia Child and James Beard, and that was pretty much it. What decade did you uh, train in? I graduated in the 80s. In I the graduated 80s. in 1986, and that's when this all happened. How important was your training at the Culinary Institute to you actually doing what you do n- now? Like, Or did you take a lot of it from your family experience? I took more of it from the culinary than I did anything. It was incredible. And I never thought that I would be the type of person to have such strong ties to my alumni Mm -hmm. because I have such great respect for the school. And I know how much I learned from the school. I graduated third in my class because I was first in my class until I found out that my father had cancer. And, of course, I really was having a hard time trying to get through to the end. It was all about priorities, and it just didn't seem to matter. Uh, His encouragement helped. I would go home on the weekends, and I would make five or ten soups, always something I just learned, because he couldn't keep anything down. And um, one time the doctor said to me, who was a good family friend, you need to feed him. We lose a lot of cancer patients early because they just can't keep anything down and they can't Mm -hmm. eat. Mm -hmm. He did radiation only once. He didn't want to die like that. He was the type of man who wanted all his faculties with him. Mm -hmm. And if that shortened his life, so be it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I went home and I instructed the whole family what we were going to do. And I went out at the doctor's suggestion and got a joint because the chemo was destroying him so bad. Mm -hmm. And I told my mother to make a big pot of tomato sauce. Because in our Italian family, if there was nothing else to eat on this planet, (laughs) Italian sauce was there, we were good. (laughs) And so I went upstairs, and I lit it, and I I showed him how to do it, and he took two hits, and he said, I don't want any more. And I said, okay. And it was very uncomfortable and very awkward. Because it was still the era where everybody was freaking out about something like that. Yeah. Um, He knew without any discussion why we were doing it. So I went downstairs and my family's all giggling and laughing. How did it go? What did you do? And why the baby of the family did it, I have no idea. But I was the (laughs) one elected. And all of a sudden you hear the slippers coming down the stairs. And he walks into the kitchen stoned with this shit-eating grin on his face. He was 55. And he said, "Um, what you making? What's going on in there? So we fed him a big bowl of pasta, and he ate the whole thing. I hadn't seen him eat like that in I don't know how long. He had the munchies like (laughs) nobody's business. But unfortunately, an hour later, I heard him upstairs heaving Uh it all up. Uh But it still was, it's still a great memory, believe it or not. In a horrific time, it was a great memory. And, um, And I loved that as time was going, I had a purpose with him. While I was in school, uh, his partner wound up showing up to my graduation and surprising me because he knew how important it was to my dad, unbeknownst to me. Mm-hmm. But um, I felt as though I needed to really absorb the last months of my schooling mm-hmm. because towards the end, we were losing kids because they couldn't afford the tuition. Mm-hmm. It was a Harvard-type tuition in a cooking school 
that did not ha- turn out famous people yet. Yeah. So parents would often say to their kids, I, I, I'm behind you 100%, but I can't afford 90000 to yeah. send you to a cooking school. My father paid the whole way. He always paid our way. I never thought twice about it. And now all of a sudden I realized. So I had the opportunity to make that school's learning uh, as important as I wanted it to be. So it followed me. Everything else made me why I was able to be top in my class. Because I went into it with things that other kids didn't have the chance to, like dining out at fine restaurants at 6 and 7. Yeah. At 13, if I wanted lobster, my father said, sure. If I looked at something on the menu that I didn't, had never heard of, he would order it for the center of the table. So we would all now know about it. Mm-hmm. So the family background was encouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, traveling. My father passed away six months later, and he was 55 and I was 23. And I had a partner um, who I met, a young guy named Brian Callaghan, mm-hmm. when I was 17, waitering. And we fell madly oh, no. in love. Really? And we didn't know that, that, that you could fall in love like that at 17. But gay yeah. guys did not fall in love and stay together at that time. Did you know that you were gay at the time? Yes, I always knew. Did anybody else know? No. No. What was that like? It was a way of life back then. Yeah. Um, the people that were close to me knew as friends, but there were a lot of friends that landed into the acquaintance category that did not know, mm-hmm. and my family did not know. So dad did not do- know when Dad never knew. He died never knowing. Yeah. My mother had an idea only when Brian came into the picture. Mm-hmm. Brian and I... Uh, Brian was a Ford uh, modeling agency top model. Mm. And so he was very successful. So between the two of us, we had a lot of money at a young age. And we took off and started traveling. Mm -hmm. It was going to be one of two things. It was going to be alcohol or drugs, or I was going to be saved by my companion. And he was incredible that way. We wound up being together from 17 years old to 34 when he wow. contracted pancreatic cancer. Oh, geez. Um, but it was a wonderful life. It was an incredible life because it was a time that you're generally not with your partner. My teens, my 20s, and then my 30s. Yeah. By the time Brian passed, I was the man I will always be. Yeah. But I watched him and I watched each other become that. Yeah. It was more fun than meeting someone at 53 and them seeing the man I am, yeah. uh, it also made us a lot closer that way. So um, that was really, really sad. But Brian and I saw the world. We went to Cannes during the festival. We went wherever the A-listers were going. And I ate and ate and ate and ate and learned and learned and learned. So there's many facets to why I am what I consider to be the best in my field. Yeah. And it's funny because I never talk about it to my customers that want to get to know me because I own a coffee house. And right now, at that point, it just seems a little frivolous to talk about myself in the capacity I know I am because I haven't done with my own business what I'm capable of doing yet, but I'm doing it exactly the way I wanted to. So, so, well, that's a lot of interesting stuff there. 
<laughs> did how much time did you have with him before he died uh, from the diagnosis until he died? Well, that was probably the worst part because yeah. the worst death I had ever experienced was my dad's, and it was horrific. All the way to the point where everyone held vigil at my parents' house mm -hmm. by my father's bedside, and his best friend, who was a doctor, said to us downstairs, he has hours, if not minutes. So we went up and sat there, and he breathed heavy, but he didn't talk, but he knew we were there. And then it just went on so ridiculously long. Mm -hmm. And he had whispered to me, I'm not going anywhere. And it was a joke. So my mother sent everybody home. They all lived less than a mile away and said, get some rest. And then he died. Mm. And my mother asked me to close his eyes. And they wouldn't close. And it was, it was so difficult for me. Yeah. And I knew that my whole family was mourning, so I never told anybody that it was just a little bit too much for me. Yeah. Basic, the basic death was enough as it is to send me over the edge. But that was difficult. To actually have to close his eyes, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. part. Yeah. To, to have to make, to do something as a kid that I wish somebody in my family older than me, mm -hmm. which you just expect them to do the hard things, would have done. Mm -hmm. But for Brian, it was almost two and a half years. And it was devastating. And he was, for two-thirds of it, he was bad. He was yeah. bad to where I always knew he was not going to make it. And it's really amazing to me that I always knew that pancreatic cancer, will you will not survive it. But you go into it, and the doctors say encouraging things, and he doesn't look sick yet, and you yeah. believe he could do it. But two-thirds of the way through, I was absolutely sure. I had more than I was when I was a kid. I was always called Peter Pan as a kid. I was named two things by close friends and family that I look back and I wonder how irresponsible in a way I was hmm. um, that people would call me Jackie Papers, which was the little boy in Puff the Magic Dragon, hmm. to the point where I didn't understand it. So somebody actually gave me the book for my birthday one time. <laughs> and when I opened the last page and saw... Um, Jackie Papers that looked just like me as a little boy. And Peter Pan. Because you look like them or because of the because story? Of, was because of my life that Jack never had a hard time. Jack had whatever he wanted. Jack was a good boy. Mm -hmm. Jack was good in school. And Jack never grew up. I mean, I'm still a real little kid inside to this day. But I had to work at that. Yeah, well, you, you, you strike me as having uh, just a a great disposition personality and a lot of you seem jolly to me i am you know but from what you're telling me it's i mean you you dealt with two uh, deaths of people that are very close to you uh it's, it's a double, it's still double in dose me somehow of, yeah it's still in me somehow how how do you think you still have that in you that jolliness or that kind of joie de vivre um even after those people were taken from you well, I do think there's a couple of things, because I do think about it. Um, after Brian died, I started to say to myself, okay, I'm spiritual, I'm Catholic, I am not on Catholicism's side at the time, mm -hmm. 
so it made me read more about spirituality so that I wasn't shortchanging myself or making a fool of myself when I spoke. How close is that to a religion, to be spiritual? What exactly is it that I am then if I say to people I'm spiritual? Mm-hmm. And with that, I realized that I felt as if some people get dealt a bad deck and some people don't. And I thought maybe I had too much when I was younger. And this is the reality check. God doesn't give everybody a perfect life. Mm -hmm. And I really had nothing. I had the Donna Reed syndrome of a whole childhood. And um, this is what I was dealt. So if that's the case, I don't want people to see that I'm not prepared to accept the bad with the good. And I couldn't live that way, so I retreated. And I lived in New York City, and I said no to every single friend who called me off the hook and said, you have to go out, we have to take you out, you have to go out. Mm -hmm. I had this impression that everybody was trying to fix me up again. Mm -hmm. Um, Age really does a hell of a lot to you. I was very good looking when I was younger, so I had a partner my whole life when you would be dating. Yeah. And I had people trying to pick him up and trying to pick me up all the time, and we would always laugh about it. Mm-hmm. We w- w- we're a lot like Coleman and I are now. Mm-hmm. I-, I really am very, very lucky that it came around to me again. But um, I, uh, I, I did. I stayed inside for almost... He's been gone 13 years. Wow. And I stayed in for almost nine so never you, doing you, anything, never dating, never having sex with anyone, nothing. Were, were you depressed? I was learning to be alone for the first time in my life. Yeah. My cousins walked away when my father died. He was the one that kept everybody together. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, the holidays were four people yeah. instead of 35. 35 is the only way I looked at having fun. It was the only way it was a success as if... They were big parties and lots of fun, and everybody doted on Jack. And yeah. So when I thought all these people around me made it good, it was all these people did something for me that made it great, even better. Yeah. But basically, I really loved crowds. And I started to see all of this dwindling quickly, and I said to myself, um, maybe that's what I have to learn to do now, is learn that it's okay to be alone. Yeah. So... I was depressed on holidays. I was depressed on the times that normal people can get depressed. And they need someone to smack them and go, Do, would, would you like me to tell you all that's good in your life right now? I know you're alone on Christmas Day, but come on. But that's a, bit, a major change for you to go from 35 people in the room on holidays to just a few. It still is. Yeah. It's so yeah. ridiculous now that I've labeled myself as the number one problem that will continue to always be haunting me in my life is abandonment. Yeah. I feel that I don't think I was abandoned, but I know darn right well that I think clinically I feel like I was it was all about abandonment. Me one after another. Dad and then Brian. Yeah. Dad, Brian, and then my brother passed. Oh really? Right after Brian, 
He was my older brother, so mm-hmm. he was the patriarch, but we weren't mm-hmm. extremely close, but we were closer as adults than we ever were. Mm-hmm. He had a child, and I was made the godfather. Mm-hmm. He had one boy uh, who is now 22, and he's lost his dad at 13. How did your brother My die? brother died of a massive heart attack on the front lawn after jogging at 52. Wow. And um, he had had angioplasty. My father had a bad heart. He got it. I apparently don't have it yet, mm-hmm. but I'm always watching it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so by the time Michael died, I was like, okay, this is getting a little ridiculous. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm losing them left and right, and I'm becoming more and more just me. Yeah. And then I had my sister. My middle brother walked away from the family in the meantime. Mm-hmm. He was a drug addict. He was the black sheep of the family, but everybody loved Jerry. Everyone loved him. He was a great teenager. He was a great early 20s. And yeah. then he got hooked on drugs, and he was never the same. Where, where does he live? We don't know. He walked away from the family and wanted nothing to do with anybody ever again. Hmm. I know that he's been homeless. Mm-hmm. I know that every one of us in the family would take him back in a minute. Mm-hmm. And he's told us he wants nothing to do with us, so there's nothing we can do. But boom, suddenly, yeah. okay, another one's gone. Yeah. Then it's my sister and I. My sister becomes an alcoholic. She moves down here. Mm-hmm. She begs me to come down. I visit her. We go out drinking. I didn't think anything of it because I'm here to visit. I didn't realize it was an every day, every minute of every day thing. Yeah. She hooks up with a guy who's a baker, and she opens a bakery in town. And she calls me incessantly and says, sell your businesses up there and come move down here. I... Don't know any. She knows nothing about the career she picked, which is following me. She raised a handicapped daughter her whole life as a single parent mm-hmm. and had to put her in a group home when she was 21 and my sister was 42. Wow. She started her career then for the first time and chose what I had always talked about. It was the closest thing she could find to picking something. Yeah. Well, I came down here to help her. I sold the businesses. We didn't want to grow all the part. I get down here. We fight a lot, but I came down anyway. And not only do I find out she's an alcoholic, but I found out that she stole my identity. And there are write-ups in the paper on her walls that say my career, that she graduated the Culinary Institute of America, that she went to Germany. I went to Germany and became a master chef three years after I graduated the culinary. There was only 300. At the time, there were only 300 in the country, and I was one of them. And she told people that, and it was the hardest thing I ever did. And you can't, if you ever hear someone say they're a master chef, they're probably lying. Yeah. It's it's very rare you come across (laughs) one. I never tell anybody that either because there's no point in owning a coffee house and saying you're a master chef. But when the time is right, I would be very proud to say it, like owning Altamora. Yeah, yeah. When the, the I found new, all the new that restaurant, Altamore. Right, exactly. Yeah. I walked away from my sister. Her boyfriend was very abusive verbally, and I didn't want anything to do with the situation. And they weren't helping me. They wanted me to help them. So you moved down to New Orleans to help her with the bakery. Yep. And then suddenly was completely alone, living in the basement of a house with no furniture. My pod was up in New Jersey. I had been making 200 K a year yeah. with my two businesses up north. I sold them to move down here. Yeah. And I bought my mother a condominium. And, and I said, sit- I will go down to my sister and we, yeah. I will make it all over again. I don't have a problem. And then suddenly I was destitute. 
how did you feel about moving to a city like New Orleans? Like, were, were you coming here a little bit uh, resentful of your sister having to help her out? Or was it a place where you, you saw it as a new beginning for you? I found it as a new beginning. I was excited. Mm-hmm. I've... Um, because I traveled so much in my life, I love the adventure. Mm-hmm. And I always use the word adventure. I lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico. That's where I went to college. Okay. And that's because my sister married a man from New Jersey that we knew his family well. Big Irish family. Mm-hmm. He was the oldest. We never knew him. He was already out of the house. He had a ranch in Santa Fe. They went out to visit it after they got married. And my sister said, I'm madly in love with this place. I'm not leaving. I went to visit I was going to school that fall, and I said to her, do they have a college? I don't want to leave either. This place is great. How do we finagle talking mom and dad into letting me switch from Seton Hall Mm -hmm. that I got into Mm -hmm. to College of Santa Fe? And, of course, we called my father, and he was beside himself. He asked me if I was going to take basket weaving or sand painting because at the (laughs) time, most of my relatives thought I was talking about Mexico. That's how little people knew about New Mexico in New York. Um, (laughs) It just so happened after I graduated and I moved back to New Jersey, um, there was Southwestern became the look and Santa Fe became popular. And people in New Jersey were turning their houses into like the look of Southwestern that looked really funny, all pink and turquoise. Well, but how, tell me about New Orleans, though, when you came here. How long have you been here for? I've been here four years. For four years? And so I came down here looking at it totally as an adventure and that it would be fun. Yeah. I had watched it for two years before I came down, very different than all the way to Katrina. Katrina, yeah. The year before Katrina is the first time she moved down, first time I ever saw it. But the last two years before I moved down, I started looking at it from a businessman's perspective, and I thought... My accountant told me in New York, you can't open anything else. The economy is shot. And Mm -hmm. you're doing really well, so just leave it the way it is. Mm -hmm. And I wanted more. And I wanted to do more. And then I got down here and I started to look around and I said, I can't believe the city has no recession right now. And then I studied it. And I realized that Katrina and BP really helped that. And Fed money really helped it. And now that there was not as corrupt of a government, maybe the money was being used the right way. And I said, maybe if I moved here and opened a place, I could continue to grow with the city. So it was all positive. And it was a very short nightmare when it fell apart. I mean, I really, I didn't dwell on it. You mean with your sister? Yeah. 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 How long did it take you to uh, conceive of the idea of Manhattan Jack? um, Well... I came down here thinking I was going to help her and then sell my chocolates out of her store and spin off. So I always came down thinking I was going to do it. But to answer your question, I met Coleman. And Coleman is my business partner. And Coleman went to work for my sister part-time because he had been a barista at Starbucks across the street on Maple Street uh, for years. And he knew it well. And he wanted a little extra work, and she was a popular place at the time. And he would come in the back and watch me intently make chocolate, and he would say to me, I always wanted to do this. I always wanted to chef. I always wanted to have anything to do with food, but I was a musician, and that's what my parents wanted for me. Mm -hmm. And they would not pay for me to do any of this. Mm. But I'm very interested. Yeah. Well, the... 
kind of like the climate at the store was always very negative. And by the end of the day, it usually had all of us as workers very uptight. Because of uh, your sister? With her boyfriend. Oh, okay. And um, Coleman turned around to me one day and said, he looked at me in the middle of an argument going on in the store unrelated to us, and he said, cocktail? And I said, yeah. (laughs) Well, we went out, we talked for four hours, never knew each other before that, and then went out every night for 11 days. Four, five, six, seven hours sitting at a table talking and realizing that there was something insanely connective between the two of us. Um, I mean, it was like love at first sight, and we're friends. We're just friends. So there's no romance there. There's no romance, but there is 100% romance, but we have never had sex. He has a girlfriend. He's straight. I'm gay. And we're madly in love with each other. And we spend every waking moment together. Yeah. And we've just broken all the rules. Nobody <laughs> understands it. Nobody believes us. <laughs> and what's odd is he doesn't care. Well, he's 29. Maybe he is gay and he doesn't know it yet. But all I know is he's the greatest companion that I was lucky enough to meet. Right when I said I don't want to be alone anymore. Yeah. I don't want to be alone anymore. And I could have become very clingy with him. And yet, it took a while for me to realize he's exactly as clingy. He has a whole story of his own. A breakup of parents. Thinking it was all his own fault. Being an only child. Being left alone. Being shipped off. He desperately wanted me, and I desperately wanted him, and we came together. And through all those conversations, Manhattan Jack was born. He said to me, I said to him, I have to take the concept bigger because it's nothing right now but a a, a confection shop or a bakery. And then he said to me, well, I'm coffee. And I said, but how could I open a coffee shop in a city where there's one on every corner? And yet I'm not a native and I don't know the secrets of it. I was very smart in where I opened my first businesses. I knew it well. Yeah. I was ahead of the game, and I thought that was very important. Mm -hmm. So this was not qualifying with all the checklists. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, it started to come together. Again, conversations. But you asked me how long it took, and from the crushing moments that I realized I was all alone, and I didn't know what I was going to do, and I met him, it took us six months, I think, and we became partners. We did an LLC, and then we started to figure out what do we do with this LLC? So he really helped you place the location of the shop. He helped me place the concept. And then him and I, 50-50, spent two years after that trying to find the perfect location. Location. He was yeah. using my expertise. He's from Oklahoma, mm-hmm. but he lived here four years before me earlier. So he could, he could talk to you about the city, right. and you could talk, bring your expertise to right. the table. Yeah. I now knew what Bayou St. John meant. I yeah. now knew what the Marini meant. I only knew they existed. I didn't know what type of people lived in those areas. Why do you think you picked Pertania Street, which I think is a great location, but what was going through your mind when you guys picked that? Well, it's funny. We drove down Pertania a dozen times. The way we started the business again as partners was to wholesale baked goods. Mm-hmm. And what we were trying to do was two things. One, I felt I wanted to start to get the name out. So that this trademark name, Manhattan Jack, would not be completely foreign 
to everyone in the city by the time we opened. Yeah. Somebody would know. McAllister's was one of the first to pick us up. They wanted little dessert snacks for the counter. We had to make the price point work for them. So we were not putting out the product that I would put in my store. But mm-hmm. it did get the name out a lot. More people than I realized went to McAllister's. Yeah. Before I knew it, they were asking me if we did soup. And anybody asked us if we did something, me being a chef, I would say, done. <laughs> now all of a sudden we're in the soup business. It's the last thing we wanted to be a part of. <laughs> and uh, every day, delivering, we would go down for Tanya. And I only saw the successful businesses that surround me now. Mm-hmm. And I would say to Colin, this is where we should be. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. And I would say, I, it's so annoying that nothing looks like it's ever going to go under. We're never going to get any space. Yeah. Everything's doing good. My space, obviously, was so small in the storefront, I never noticed it. It was a gem. Yeah. Didn't see it. Didn't see a sign. And he would ask me, what are we looking for? What is it you want? And I said to him, it's funny. I, I have to back up a minute. Coleman was learning from scratch. He had an incredible natural talent for this. Yeah. Another part of what fascinates me about Coleman is how much we relate to each other's lives. He knew, but no one else supported him. It was different than me, but he always knew what he wanted to do. And it must mean that he knew he could do it. It's fascinating how incredible this guy's moved along. He's surpassing the master, no, no doubt about it. Really? And I'm enjoying that because he's extremely smart and he's a very old soul. Yeah, yeah. I'm immature. He's mature. We meet in the middle. We're 26 <laughs> years apart and could easily be married together for life. We never question our friendship ever. What do you think, um, looking back on your success, what do you think were the uh, components to getting you there? Oh, God. I definitely think you have to become it. You can't talk about it. You have to become it. So what I mean by that, I think, is there were times that I had to go back. I had to go back and discuss what it is we were about to be doing because we were doing more than we were sitting back and pontificating. Uh, I mean, you and Coleman, me and Coleman, we picked that location. Why I wanted that location was because unbeknownst to him and most people I would imagine as the public. Yeah. Most bakeries today are having such a hard time surviving that they don't use the real ingredients anymore. You can get a facsimile for virtually every single thing you use in a bakery. Mm-hmm. But at Manhattan Jack, we use all the real deal. It's you mean like um, butter, alternative uh, ingredients that are exactly. cost less? Yeah. Exactly. Now, I, these are commodities, a lot of them like sugar, and they're very expensive, and they're mm-hmm. getting more expensive every day. Dairy is ridiculous, and it's a coffee house. Mm-hmm. We go through a lot of dairy. Mm-hmm. I had to put myself in a location where I knew the community around me would know it, recognize it, appreciate it, and pay for it. Yeah, sure. And that was 100%. I was not stupid. I never saw an area filled with walking traffic like that one block radius does on Britannia. Oh, yeah. But it really was, I was looking for a spot where I knew the people would come in and say, $3 for a bakery cookie? 
I get it. It's great. I don't care. Right. Uh, actually, it was like Christmas, though, because it overwhelmed me how they surpassed me worrying that they wouldn't understand why it's as expensive as it is in there. Yeah. I have women standing at the counter with their card in their hand looking around, trying to figure out if there's anything else they could put on the counter before <laughs> they total up. You know, I, in the early months, I said to Coleman, everything we sell should be all at the register. Everything just piled up because they just want to leave with stuff. stuff. Yeah. And thank God, 100% success is based on being the best you could be. So tell me more about that. You're saying uh, you have to own it, meaning you have to be doing it. And uh, tell me more about that. Because for people who want success, I think people have an idea about what they like and what they're interested in. But maybe they don't take those first steps. And I'm kind of thinking for you, even before Manhattan Jack, too, because you said that you had restaurants up north. Um, I had the little shops up north. The shops up north. So, yeah, what went into you really becoming a success? And I, I would comment on this, too. It's interesting that your success came even after you said that, you know, you had this Peter Pan uh, syndrome or the... Um, Puff yeah, the magic dragon. Puff the ma- magic dragon where, you know, <laughs> things were papers. given to you, but, you know, you lived through these, these deaths of family members and... And then you really made it. So you obviously have learned the hard work or the recipe for success and, and the hard work. So I never um, look back on it to realize that. I do. I, I can only say what I did. And then that probably answers the question. Okay. And it was that. Let's say as an example of being down here, Coleman and I looked at it methodically and said, okay, we both have no money. Why would that stop you if you're talented? Mm-hmm. So we would get the word out there what we were doing. We would, every time somebody recognized us, maybe we were delivering, making a delivery to, to uh, McAllister's and someone would say, so you're the guys who make this, that brownie I'm infatuated with. I'm so glad it's here. What do you do for a living? Mm-hmm. Uh, I work for a bank. Oh, could we have your card? My point being, Coleman and I learned so much about doing business in New Orleans by being turned away or being redirected. Mm-hmm. But we made sure every chance we had, somebody knew our cause. Yeah. Otherwise, him and I are running on a treadmill. So we went to many banks, and the banks would tell us what we needed, none of which we had. And it was always time. If you have $250,000 in your bank account, we'll give you two fifty. Yeah. I was like, okay, well, that doesn't make sense. Then it's if you, were, if you had any business, including this wholesale that is LLC, and you had it for more than three years, then we would talk to you. So okay. we didn't have time. We didn't have money. Yeah. But what we did have is the learning curve. Now we knew what banks wanted and we went to every bank to see was that the same thing across the board? Mm -hmm. Was there any loopholes? But 100% it's drive and it's a floor plan. 
we knew every single step laid out that we were going to do. I mean, personal drive. Personal yeah. drive. And then the and, and the layout and the format is okay. Where do we want to be, and what are we going to have to do to get there? Mm-hmm. So, if we wanted money to get there, then we went to the banks. Yeah. Most people would. Pro- I've had many people say to me, "Well, don't bother. You know, they're not going to." Hmm. But that's not going to help tell me why they're not going to. And yeah. you're not going to tell me because you don't want me to succeed because you're not my best friend. And all you know is we're trying to become a success at something. Right. So it's easier for you to say that will never work. So we would put ourselves on the line to be shut down all the time, but we always walked away with knowledge. But you, and you knew, though, that, be, that you were talented and that you knew what you were doing. You believed in your product. You believed in your own talents. And that's, a, that's, an, important, that's an important part of you think of being successful. I think it's 100%. I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's very important. And if you doubt for one minute, then change it or don't do it. Meaning? What do you mean change it or don't do it? Uh, say I want to be a builder. And I realize that I can afford to build houses with uh, cheap gypsum board. Mm-hmm. And not real plywood. Uh, but the houses probably aren't going to last. Mm-hmm. Oh, I really would. I want to build a house that lasts 100 years. Mm-hmm. But this is all I could do, so I'll do it. No. Mm-hmm. No. You don't do it until you could do it with plywood and you do it to last. Mm-hmm. You, and, and that was very important to, to us. Yeah. That's why it took us two and a half, almost three years of being dead broke. I have never been dead broke in my life. Um, I became a master chef for one reason only. I have a strange ego. It has nothing to do with success determined by society. Mm -hmm. A master chef means you have now put yourself in a category that only a specific amount of people in the world are as good as you. Mm -hmm. I could care less. I wanted to be as good as I could be in my own success is determined by my own mind. Mm-hmm. But without there being any stardom in chefing, the salary capped off $60,000, a year. That was it. Mm-hmm. If you were a master chef, you went over 100000 instantly. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't have any more money. This is going to be my career, and I've lived a good life, and I know how to spend it. Mm-hmm. So why don't I go take a, a master's degree? Sure. Why don't I go that step further yeah. that's going to command me more money? Yeah. So um, I feel that we waited until we could do it exactly the way I planned on doing it. Now, in the meantime... We had two young guys from a friend's law office mm-hmm. who said, I want, we want to back you. We want to, go, we want to be the guys that go find you money. We're going to be your brokers. Mm-hmm. We were two years into this and uh, looking for money and looking for a way to get a place. Knowing how to do it, but just not knowing how to get the money. And... Uh, they got us a good time. I was weak, and I said, you know, let's go for it. Yeah. Well, they would never tell us who the guys may be, but they had someone in mind, and it wound up to be their dads. And we figured this out because we found out, looking up their dads, how wealthy they were, and they, and they invested a lot. Yeah. They were raping us of every bit 
of our individuality and our cash flow. You mean they were putting limits on yes, what you could do Yes, their contracts the were yeah. going to be, I'm going to give you 350000 They actually saw the place before we leased it. They were involved at the time we found Britannia Street. And they walked in and said, we're going to build fountains, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and we're going to spend what came out from the architects to be almost $350,000. We had some investment money from me that I found that I didn't realize had accrued a little bit, and we had $22,000. And eventually I said to Coleman, this is not how you do it. They are going to take everything from us, and they could kick us out one day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it evolved into, why don't we just open it? Just get it open. And it wound up that over a year that we had rented it before we opened it, we accrued from the little wholesaling five grand here, two grand here, and we came up with eighty thousand dollars. And Coleman has never nailed a piece of wood before. And you saw the counter. <laughs> it's still there two it's years there. later. Yeah. And it could go like this at any day. It's got awful. <laughs> but what I learned while I was doing it was very important. This is different than where I've been before. This city is old and no one cares what it looks like. Yeah. They care about the quality of the product. Yeah. It was something I started to learn about how the city looks at quality that made me also believe down here was a good idea. But I didn't know it until we were in. And I have a good story about that. The day we opened the door was a week earlier than we should have. But we realized we would go bankrupt if we didn't get open. Um, We got 30 days on most of our suppliers. And so we had 30 days to make some money or we were dead. And there was moldings missing all over the store and little things, a punch list. And we opened at 530 in the morning and we had been up for 48 hours. And we were delirious, and we were hallucinating. I mean, it was really bad. I I was 50 at the time. I could not be up for 48 hours, and I was. So, boom. We opened the doors at 6.30, and people were flocking in. I mean, the first day, we had almost 400 customers. We we couldn't get over it. We also were building out for two months, so everybody who walked by pretty much knew when to approach. And there was a very good-looking woman very wealthy, very well-dressed, big rock on her finger, and her husband, very successful, in their 40s. And they went and sat down at a table, and he was ignoring her completely and working on his smartphone. And she's looking around and pointing and then talking to him. And I'm behind the counter. I said to Coleman, I'm going to go over and fake clean the table next to them. I want to know. I was very nervous about the decor. We went... And we're always going for the Brooklyn Warehouse look. And I said, I don't know if they're going to get it down here. And we went into a rich neighborhood, and then we couldn't afford to make it pretty. What are we going to do? I had no idea if the design I did was smart or not. I'm not a designer. But I've always had a talent for that. So I thought. So I go up and I listen. And I hear her saying, honey, honey, do you know what this is? This place is fabulous. Do you know what this is? I knew it was going to be this great, and he's not answering. And I can only wipe the table for so long. And she's repeating herself over and over again. He's completely ignoring her. And finally he goes, what are you talking about? And she goes, this is that new Brooklyn warehouse chic. This is in all the magazines. Do you know how I know? Do you know how I know? Do you know? And he's not answering her. He could care less. And she goes, look at all the things purposely not done. 
to make it look like a warehouse. See how they did all that beautiful molding and then they left that piece off? I start laughing to myself. I said, oh, my God. They actually think this is done on purpose. Uh, I go in the kitchen. Coleman's leaning up against the refrigerator with his eyes closed. And I said, I've got good news. He said, what? I said, you're done. He said, what do you mean I'm done? I said, no more building. He goes, oh, my God. We have so much to do out there. I'll get to it. Don't worry. I said, wait till I tell you the story. Yeah. And there was the acceptance of the store, the look of the store, and everything just worked out great after that. Uh, and it fantastic. was really it was really pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. But um I, I, yeah, go ahead. it just goes to show that you guys took a risk and I love the vulnerability of you opening. You have that 30-day crunch time to get it done or to actually open and make a profit of some sort. Um I think that's a great lesson for people to know that sometimes you got to just put it on the line and you know jump for it. It can't yeah. it will never be perfect before the day you go and embark on it. It will yeah. never be perfect and it's really important to know that your vision can take some time. Yeah. But yeah, you really do have to jump into it. Also too very well thought out. Really yeah. everything that's happened in that store was very well thought out. Mm-hmm. And very importantly, which I have taught people before, you have to listen to your customers mm-hmm. and your community. And once our well-thought-out plan took place, we stood back and waited to hear what everybody had to say. People were walking in in the beginning, and at the beginning of the counter to your right were our homemade bagels, mm-hmm. which is my pride and joy because I never knew how to make them before I moved down here. And when we were building out, people were sticking their head in the door going, hey, it's going to be called Manhattan Jack. You're making bagels, right? And I said, oh, yeah. And they'd walk away and Coleman and go, really? And when were you going to tell me you knew how to do that? I was like, I don't. We'll figure it out. So every day that I make a good bagel, I, I couldn't be more proud of it. That's There's great. nothing else. That's fantastic. But nobody would buy them. Really? New Orleans could care less. It was too much bread. They didn't, it didn't look like a biscuit. It's not Southern. And they would look at the bagels, and I'd be like... Bongo monkey. I used to, Bongo monkey. They're lucky they're going to buy them. And then they would turn and see the biscuits and go, oh, I'll have two. And I said to Coleman, I'm going to start giving them out because they're not getting this. And I started giving them out, and all of a sudden, it started growing and growing and growing. And now, I might as well just be a bagel shop, for really? God's sakes. For everything, we sell equally well. Wow. If I could not make anything else, I know that store would have existed as coffee and bagels. But people have said to me many times, which cracks me up, the only thing a regular customer always inquires to me eventually is, does your chocolate sell? Because the girls behind my counter are instructed to keep it stopped. Risk of death to one chocolate is sold, one chocolate goes back. So they're always neat. A bagel mound could be messy. That's bagels. But when you go into a chocolate shop, you want to see a lot of them. Mm Mm-hmm. You want to see plenty of flavors. When I start to run out of a certain flavor, I can't sell the last 10. Nobody wants to touch it. They want to see it full. <laughs> so I always laugh at people and say that. And then when I say that to them, that we replace them all the time, then sometimes I get a look like they're thinking, I may be wrong, but they're looking at me like, oh, yeah, so you t- the store's just perfect. Everything sells. Everything you've done works great. Well, that's not necessarily true, but... It was very well thought out what we have out. Is that a marketing technique? Why do you think that that works for people to have it um, look, not just looking nice, but looking fully It's a marketing technique. It's food. 
So and food like, is all through your eyes first. You can't taste it before you buy it. So you see it, you're tasting it in your mind. But if you only have 10 there, you're saying you can't sell those last 10. What's the reasoning for that? I think that's because they think they're old then. Oh, uh, okay. Whenever there's a few left, it means they've, uh, they've been out for a long time. Yeah. And all day, somebody had the chance to buy it. And they didn't. Okay. Um, but even setting up the store the way we do for people that don't see the store, you know, it's a 27 foot long counter that you have to stand online and stare at. Yep. Um, the concept for the shop that evolved with having a partner, which I really recommend, it's really good to go into business with someone else. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of different feelings about my success up north. It was lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, Yet my private life, being all alone, and I knew it, and I knew it was a little lonely, didn't bother me as much. I didn't like that I didn't have anybody to celebrate any moments with when they happened. Because in a retail shop, they happen randomly. Yeah. Somebody comes in off the street and says, I need $700 worth of chocolate. Do you have any gift boxes? And we go, yes. (laughs) I actually do. Take it. You want to run to somebody and go, it's a good day. Yeah, yeah. Um. A partner is also really good because you can't be everything. And a, a retail shop, a business like that, you got to wear every hat. You can have an yeah. accountant, but you got to know what he's doing. And so chances are good the two of you together may know it. Right. So that leads me to telling you the concept for this, which is why we believe it's duplicatable, very much so. When I said I thought it would be very arrogant to come into New Orleans and open up a coffee shop when there's one on every corner... There are two types of coffee shops in this city that I researched, and that's very important, too, for a business of any kind. It's not just about knowing what's in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It's about looking at the, whole, the city as a whole and realizing what type of printing place, yeah. what type of tire store do they gravitate to. And in this city, there are either um, multi-unit National coffee houses, uh, like Starbucks, or there are very bohemian independent coffee shops. Bohemian, right off the bat, carves half of your clientele out because people that are a lot like the customers at my store Mm -hmm. don't want to walk in and have somebody inked all over their body and pierced all over their face and ponytail making their coffee and getting their food. Mm -hmm. Um, and it tends to be vegan or, or vegetarian yeah. if you want to get any food with it in the morning. And then you have, uh, as you know, the Starbucks where the food is just got awful and it's frozen and they let you see it. They're not hiding it and there's yeah. nothing to it. Why would you want to represent the best coffee in the world, as Starbucks claims, but give me a generic frozen crappy piece of pastry? Yeah. And if you were to say to me coffee is more important, then why do you serve pastry at all? You somewhere along the line know that pastry is needed and that it completes your morning stop to get some food in you before you get to the office. Why would you do one so great and one inferior? So I said to Coleman, you're a barista. I'm a a chef and a baker. We put the best bakery alongside the best coffee house. We spent a summer researching the blend of coffee that we were going to name. We had Lavazza. And we had Illy Cafe from Italy calling us hmm. 
when the papers announced that we were opening. No one knew us. Hmm. None of the writers knew who I was. But they were calling us saying, we want to be the coffee in your store. And I almost took them before I realized if this is my concept, it should be my coffee. Mm-hmm. So now you're coming in the morning on the way to work and you get a handheld breakfast item if you wanted it, like the stuffed croissants. And you can drive and this is not pouring yeah. all over you and yeah. you have your coffee. But at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, do you want, when you can't keep your head up at your desk, do you want coffee and a croissant? No, you want sugar. So you have bars and cookies and cake Mm -hmm. and brownies, and you have chocolates. The chocolates are by the register on purpose because you, 90% of the time you come in as a regular, you don't need chocolates. But I keep reminding you, when the holidays come and you have to buy a box of chocolates, you now remember where to go. Oh, yeah. So how you put it all together, again, is important. But now we've created a concept that is not anybody else's concept and can't always be their concept. Yeah, and that must be difficult to replicate if, unless you're Manhattan and Jack because right. Starbucks is a chain where it's hard to make fresh pastries every day. But then if you're just a baker, maybe you're not investing the coffee as much. That's right. Now um, think about this. In this day and age, bakeries are still needed, but can a bakery survive on its own? Would you drive to a bakery just to get a chocolate chip cookie? No. Would you get a birthday cake? If it matters so much to you, you would make it. If it doesn't, you're at the grocery store more often. That's where you'll get a cake. Because they put the bakeries out of business in a way. Coffee houses. Independent ones are dropping like flies around here. Velvet was very good before we moved in. Gone. Um, What do you think is happening there? I think what's happening is it's too expensive to uh, pay for a property for you to only sell coffee because coffee is in the morning and is in the afternoon, and that's it. You're not selling coffee at lunch if you don't have food. And if you only have a few frozen pastries, that's not lunch. Mm -hmm. What we did was we thought out how to make sure that that property is busy all day. Mm -hmm. So we have breakfast sandwiches and we have quick to-goes. We have lunch sandwiches and we have chocolates and we have cookies. We have bakery, we have coffee, and we have sit-down food. We are never slow. Um, I have some pills, that supplements that I have to take because of my age. Mm -hmm. Damn if I can remember every single day to take these things. Mm -hmm. Coleman at 29, every (laughs) single time I go to eat eat a piece of fruit, he goes, did you take your pill? And I go, oh. And he just looks at me like, what am I going to do with you? (laughs) But every night. I've been able to go to bed and look up at the ceiling and say, thanks, Dad. Thanks, Michael. I know you did. I know you put him in my life. I know you brought us together. And I also say thank you because I can't believe how beautiful everything's working right now. And it's so much fun. Every bad thing that ever happens at my job pales in comparison to this. So I know that I am. And why I am... I just think is because I work hard. I have to say, when I stay home and do nothing, it's the first moment of any time that I could think negative. I, I know that they've always said, the more you keep busy, the healthier you are. Yeah. It's very yeah. true. I'm so happy because I'm busy. Um, I have someone to share the life with which I didn't think was necessary, but it was. Yeah. And I I make sure I don't 
let the negative get in my way. Negative people. I have a friend that I was born next to, mm-hmm. Jan Turlick, who has been my best friend for 52 years because we've known each other since we were stolen carriages. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know Jan was becoming an alcoholic. Uh, she raised her children horribly. Hmm. She had divorces. She had a lot of drama. I had some drama, of course. Yeah. So we could relate. But by the time Coleman and I were off on business together, I walked away from her. She moved to Georgia with her latest boyfriend. And she was lying to me on the phone when she was drinking and said she wasn't. Hmm. And Coleman said to me, do I know everything that you've turned your back on her? He said, you did it very well. I wrote her emails. I discussed it. Um, and, of course, I got negative feedback back, and I could tell she was drunk when she wrote it. Mm-hmm. And I said to Coleman, I just don't. It's the first time in my life I think it's very important for a happy life to constantly check and recheck it. And if it's negative and there's no reason for it to be there then you need to put it to rest. You mean constantly checking relationships and just monitoring? Um, Monitoring is a better word. I monitor my whole life around me. I monitor my health. I monitor, and that's the best way, I think, to juggle it all, is that I'm not juggling it. I'm watching it carefully. When do you know that things are getting out of balance for you? Um, If I take my eye off things. A good example, in September, I went up to put my mother's house on the market. It was the first time I've left this town since I moved here. Wow. Coleman and I were, were so dedicated to what we were doing, uh, and we were so poor. We were so poor that if I had a coupon for a dollar mm-hmm. cheeseburger from McDonald's, we would split it. And I would say, I'm still hungry. And he'd go, we'll deal with it. And I'd say, this is bullshit. <laughs> I never threw out, I used to have money, this sucks. <laughs> but, I mean, it was really bad. And um, I definitely felt when I went up to New Jersey that I was so excited to do it. And then while I was up there, I said, okay, wait a minute. I am throwing a major wrench in my, um, there's a word for it, in my everyday routine, in my routine. Yeah. And it made me very nervous. And I came back, and I was edgy on my first day back. And he said, "What? you haven't seen me in a week. Why are you so edgy? What, what's going on? What's in your head? Another amazing thing, Coleman will turn to me and ask me what I'm thinking all the time. Mm-hmm. A friend doesn't do that. It, it's so much deeper than that. you know. And, I, and at first, I thought it was odd. And I thought to myself, is he having a problem coming out? I don't understand that warmth and that love yeah and now i don't think twice about it um but uh i said to him i it's it's because i feel like my uh, i took a right turn and now i gotta go all the way around to go back onto the street and he said but everything is running beautifully i said i know but i got into the pattern i liked so Staying in a pattern until you get where you need to be is really important. And everybody around you, parents drama, brother and sister drama, spouse drama, no matter how little, when you're trying to build a business, Mm -hmm. you need to make sure everybody around you knows there's nothing more important right now. Mm -hmm. 
You need to, if you have bad news to tell me that I have to know, you need to think out when and how you're going to tell me and Mm -hmm. then have a solution to it. And I said that to my family. I said, you need to say to me, this is where we're asking you to fit into this. It could be all you have to do is show up for the funeral. I know that you'd want to be there, but we've got everything else covered. I need to know in advance before you break into my world when I'm trying to accomplish something that's about money. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not, it's, that's not when it's, oh, the dream is coming true. It's I'm spending money. I could lose everything. I have to focus and I have to make this happen. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Mindset. I'm psychiatrist, Dr. Nick Pajek. You can listen to past episodes of Mindset on the New Orleans Podcast Network. It's neworleans.com. You'll also find Out to Lunch with Peter Raschuti, live from Commander's Palace. Happy Hour with Grant Morris. True to the Game with Chris True. Vietnam, the show about the New Orleans Vietnamese community with Kim Vu. And Midnight Menu Plus One with Margot Moss and the man who ate New Orleans, Ray Canada. You can keep up with Mindset on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. All the links are on the website. It's neworleans.com. If you're listening to this show on iTunes or another podcast app, Thank you for subscribing. Take a moment to rate and review us. That helps other people find us. The technical producers of Mindset are Eric Morrill and Chris Kehoe. Mindset is a production of INO Broadcasting. Summer's almost over, but at Old Navy, the styles are as hot as ever. Get to Old Navy now for 30% off all jeans, 40% off all dresses, and 50% off all tees. That's right, get 30, 40, and 50% off all your favorite styles for the whole family, plus up to 75% off clearance. Hurry in fast. These deals won't last. The sale ends soon at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid in-store 822 to 828 and online 822 to 824. Excludes in-store clearance, bubbles, active, licensed, and men's package tees.